of Human Bondage by William Somerset Maugham. Chapter 9 On the following Sunday, when the vicar was making his preparations to go into the drawing room for his nap, all the actions of his life were conducted with ceremony, and Mrs. Carey was about to go upstairs, Philip asked, What shall I do if I'm not allowed to play? Can't you sit still for once and be quiet? I can't sit still till tea time. Mr. Carey looked out of the window, but it was cold and raw, and he could not suggest that Philip should go into the garden. I know what you can do. You can learn by heart the collect for the day. He took the prayer book which was used for prayers from the harmonium and turned the pages till he came to the place he wanted. It's not a long one. If you can say it without a mistake, when I come in to tea, you shall have the top of my egg. Mrs. Carey drew up Philip's chair to the dining room table. They had bought him a high chair by now and placed the book in front of him. The devil finds work for idle hands to do, said Mr. Carey. He put some more coals on the fire so that there should be a cheerful blaze when he came in to tea and went into the drawing room. He loosened his collar, arranged the cushions, and settled himself comfortably on the sofa. But thinking the drawing room a little chilly, Mrs. Carey brought him a rug from the hall. She put it over his legs and tucked it around his feet. She drew the blind so that the light should not offend his eyes, and since he had closed them already, went out of the room on tiptoe. The vicar was at peace with himself today, and in ten minutes he was asleep. He snored softly. It was the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, and the collect began with the words, O God, whose blessed Son was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us the sons of God and heirs of eternal life. Philip read it through. He could make no sense of it. He began saying the words aloud to himself, but many of them were unknown to him, and the construction of the sentences was strange. He could not get more than two lines in his head, and his attention was constantly wandering. There were fruit trees trained on the walls of the vicarage, and a long twig beat now and then against the window pane. Sheep grazed stolidly in the field beyond the garden. It seemed as though there were knots inside his brain. Then panic seized him that he would not know the words by tea time, and he kept on whispering them to himself quickly. He did not try to understand, but merely to get them parrot-like into his memory. Mrs. Carey could not sleep that afternoon, and by four o'clock she was so wide awake that she came downstairs. She thought she would hear Philip his collect so that he should make no mistakes when it, he said it to his uncle. His uncle would be pleased. He would see that the boy's heart was in the right place. But when Mrs. Carey came to the dining room and was about to go in, she heard a sound that made her stop suddenly. Her heart gave a little jump. She turned away quickly and slipped out of the front door. She walked round the house till she came to the dining room window and then cautiously looked in. Philip was sitting on the chair she had put him in, but his head was on the table, buried in his arms, and he was sobbing desperately. She saw the convulsive movement of his shoulders. Mrs. Carey was frightened. A thing that had always struck her about the child was that he seemed so collected. 
She had never seen him cry, and now she realized that his calmness was some instinctive shame of showing his feelings. He hid himself to weep. Without thinking that her husband disliked being awakened suddenly, she burst into the drawing room. William! William! she said. The boy is crying as though his heart would break. Mr. Carey sat up and disentangled himself from the rug about his legs. What's he got to cry about? I don't know. Oh, William, we can't let the boy be unhappy. Do you think it's our fault? If we'd had children, we'd have known what to do. Mr. Carey looked at her in perplexity. He felt extraordinarily helpless. He can't be crying because I gave him the collect to learn. It's not more than ten lines. Don't you think I might take him some picture books to look at, William? There are some of the Holy Land. There couldn't be anything wrong in that. Very well. I don't mind. Mrs. Carey went into the study. To collect books was Mr. Carey's only passion, and he never went into Turkenbury without spending an hour or two in the second-hand shop. He always brought back four or five musty volumes. He never read them, for he had long lost the habit of reading, but he liked to turn the pages, look at the illustrations if they were illustrated, and mend the bindings. He welcomed wet days because on them he could stay home without pangs of conscience and spend the afternoon with white of egg and a glue pot, patching up the Russian leather of some battered quarto. He had many volumes of old travels with steel engravings, and Mrs. Carey quickly found two which described Palestine. She coughed elaborately at the door so that Philip should have time to compose himself. She felt that he would be humiliated if she came upon him in the midst of his tears. Then she rattled the door handle. When she went in, Philip was poring over the prayer book, hiding his eyes with his hands so that she might not see that he had been crying. Do you know the collect yet? she said. He did not answer for a moment, and she felt that he did not trust his voice. She was oddly embarrassed. I can't learn it by heart, he said at last with a gasp. Oh, well, never mind, she said. You needn't. I've got some picture books for you to look at. Come and sit on my lap and we'll look at them together. Philip slipped off his chair and limped over to her. He looked down so that she should not see his eyes. She put her arms around him. Look, she said, that's the place where our blessed Lord was born. She showed him an eastern town with flat roofs and cupolas and minarets. In the foreground was a group of palm trees, and under them were resting two Arabs and some camels. Philip passed his hand over the pictures as if he wanted to feel the houses and the loose habiliments of the nomads. Read what it says, he asked. Mrs. Carey, in her even voice, read the opposite page. It was a romantic narrative of some eastern traveler of the thirties. Pompous, maybe, but fragrant with the emotion with which the east came to be the generation that followed Byron and Chateaubriand. In a moment or two, Philip interrupted her. I want to see another picture. When Marianne came in and Mrs. Carey rose to help her lay the cloth, Philip took the book in his hands and hurried through the illustrations. 
it was with difficulty that his aunt induced him to put the book down for tea. He had forgotten his horrible struggle to get the collect by heart. He had forgotten his tears. Next day it was raining, and he asked for the book again. Mrs. Carey gave it him joyfully. Talking over his future with her husband, she had found that both desired him to take orders, and his eagerness for the book which described places hallowed by the presence of Jesus seemed a good sign. It looked as though the boy's mind addressed itself naturally to holy things. But in a day or two, he asked for more books. Mr. Carey took him into the study, showed him the shelf in which he kept illustrated works, and chose for him one that dealt with Rome. Philip took it greedily. The pictures led him to a new amusement. He began to read the page before and the page after each engraving to find out what it was about, and soon he lost all interest in his toys. Then, when no one was near, he took out books for himself, and perhaps because the first impression of his mind was made by an eastern town, he found his chief amusement in those which described the Levant. His heart beat with excitement at the pictures of mosques and rich palaces, but there was one, in a book on Constantinople, which peculiarly stirred his imagination. It was called the Hall of the Thousand Columns. It was a Byzantine cistern, which the popular fancy had endowed with fantastic vastness, and the legend which he read told that a boat was always moored at the entrance to tempt the unwary, but no traveler venturing into the darkness had ever been seen again. And Philip wondered whether the boat went on forever through one pillared alley after another, or came at last to some strange mansion. One day a good fortune befell him, for he hit upon Lane's translation of the thousand nights and a night. He was captured first by the illustrations, and then he began to read, to start with, the stories that dealt with magic, and then the others. And those he liked, he read again and again. He could think of nothing else. He forgot the life about him. He had to be called two or three times before he would come to his dinner. And sensibly, he formed the most delightful habit in the world, the habit of reading. He did not know that thus he was proving himself with a refuge from all the distress of life. He did not know either that he was creating for himself an unreal world which would make the real world of every day a source of bitter disappointment. Presently he began to read other things. His brain was precocious. His uncle and aunt, seeing that he occupied himself and neither worried nor made a noise, ceased to trouble themselves about him. Mr. Carey had so many books that he did not know them, and as he read little he forgot the odd lots he had brought at one time and another because they were cheap. Haphazard among the sermons and homilies, the travels, the lives of the saints, the fathers, the histories of the church were old-fashioned novels, and these Philip at last discovered. He chose them by their titles, and the first he read was The Lancashire Witches, and then he read The Admirable Crichton, and then many more. Whenever he started a book with two solitary travelers riding along the brink of a desperate ravine, he knew he was safe. 
The summer was come now, and the gardener, an old sailor, made him a hammock and fixed it up for him in the branches of a weeping willow. And here, for long hours he lay, hidden from anyone who might come to the vicarage, reading, reading passionately. Time passed, and it was July. August came. On Sundays, the church was crowded with strangers, and the collection at the offertory often mounted to two pounds. Neither the vicar nor Mrs. Carey went out of the garden much during this period, for they disliked strange faces, and they looked upon the visitors from London with aversion. The house opposite was taken for six weeks by a gentleman who had two little boys, and he sent in to ask if Philip would like to go and play with them. But Mrs. Carey returned a polite refusal. She was afraid that Philip would be corrupted by little boys from London. He was going to be a clergyman, and it was necessary that he should be preserved from contamination. She liked to see in him an infant Samuel. End of chapter 9《Of Human Bondage》by William Somerset Maugham, Chapter 10. The Careys made up their minds to send Philip to King's School at Turkenbury. The neighboring clergy sent their sons there. It was united by long tradition to the cathedral. Its headmaster was an honorary canon, and a past headmaster was the archdeacon. Boys were encouraged there to aspire to holy orders, and the education was such as might prepare an honest lad to spend his life in God's service. A preparatory school was attached to it, and to this it was arranged that Philip should go. Mr. Carey took him into Turkenbury one Thursday afternoon towards the end of September. All day Philip had been excited and rather frightened. He knew little of school life but what he had read in the stories of the boy's own paper. He had also read Eric or Little by Little. When they got out of the train at Turkenbury, Philip felt sick with apprehension and, during the drive into the town, sat pale and silent. The high brick wall in front of the school gave it the look of a prison. There was a little door in it which opened on their ringing and a clumsy, untidy man came out and fetched Philip's tin trunk and his playbox. They were shown into the drawing room. It was filled with massive, ugly furniture, and the chairs of the suite were placed round the walls with a forbidding rigidity. They waited for the headmaster. "'What's Mr. Watson like?' asked Philip after a while. "'You'll see for yourself.' There was another pause. Mr. Carey wondered why the headmaster did not come. Presently, Philip made an effort and spoke again. "'Tell him I've got a club foot,' he said. Before Mr. Carey could speak, the door burst open and Mr. Watson swept into the room. To Philip he seemed gigantic. He was a man of over six feet high and broad, with enormous hands and a great red beard. He talked loudly in a jovial manner, but his aggressive cheerfulness struck terror in Philip's heart. He shook hands with Mr. Carey and then shook Philip's small hand. "'Well, young fellow, are you glad to come to school?' he shouted. Philip reddened and found no word to answer. "'How old are you?' Nine, said Philip. "'You must say sir,' said his uncle. 
I expect you've got a good lot to learn, the headmaster bellowed cheerily. To give the boy confidence, he began to tickle him with rough fingers. Philip, feeling shy and uncomfortable, squirmed under his touch. I've put him in the small dormitory for the present. You'll like that, won't you? he added to Philip. Only eight of you in there. You won't feel so strange. Then the door opened and Mrs. Watson came in. She was a dark woman with black hair, neatly parted in the middle. She had curiously thick lips and a small, round nose. Her eyes were large and black. There was a singular coldness in her appearance. She seldom spoke and smiled more seldom still. Her husband introduced Mr. Carey to her and then gave Philip a friendly push towards her. This is the new boy, Helen. His name's Carey. Without a word, she shook hands with Philip and then sat down, not speaking, while the headmaster asked Mr. Carey how much Philip knew and what books he had been working with. The vicar of Blackstable was a little embarrassed by Mr. Watson's boisterous hardiness, and in a moment or two got up. "'I think I'd better leave Philip with you now.' "'That's all right,' said Mr. Watson. "'He'll be safe with me. "'He'll get on like a house on fire, won't you, young fellow?' Without waiting for an answer from Philip, the big man burst into a great bellow of laughter. Mr. Carey kissed Philip on the forehead and went away. "'Come along, young fellow,' shouted Mr. Watson. "'I'll show you the schoolroom.' He swept out of the drawing room with giant strides, and Philip hurriedly limped behind him. He was taken into a long, bare room with two tables that ran along its whole length. On each side of them were wooden forms. "'Nobody much here yet,' said Mr. Watson. "'I'll just show you the playground, and then I'll leave you to shift for yourself.' Mr. Watson led the way. Philip found himself in a large playground with high brick walls on three sides of it. On the fourth side was an iron railing through which you saw a vast lawn, and beyond this some of the building of King's School. One small boy was wandering disconsolately, kicking up the gravel as he walked. "'Hello, Evening!' shouted Mr. Watson. "'When did you turn up?' The small boy came forward and shook hands. "'Here's a new boy. He's older and bigger than you, so don't you bully him.' The headmaster glared amicably at the two children, filling them with fear by the roar of his voice, and then with a guffaw left them. "'What's your name?' Carrie, what's your father? He's dead. Oh, does your mother wash? My mother's dead, too. Philip thought this answer would cause the boy a certain awkwardness, but Venning was not to be turned from his facetiousness for so little. Well, did she wash? He went on. Yes, said Philip indignantly. Well, she was a washerwoman then. No, she wasn't. Then she didn't wash. The little boy crowed with delight at the success of his dialectic. Then he caught sight of Philip's feet. What's the matter with your foot? Philip instinctively tried to withdraw it from sight. He hid it behind the one which was whole. I've got a club foot, he answered. How did you get it? I've always had it. Let's have a look. No. Don't then. The little boy accompanied the words with a sharp kick to Philip's shin, 
which Philip did not expect, and thus could not guard against. The pain was so great that it made him gasp, but greater than the pain was the surprise. He did not know why Venning kicked him. He had not the presence of mind to give him a black eye. Besides, the boy was smaller than he, and he had read in the boy's own paper that it was a mean thing to hit anyone smaller than yourself. While Philip was nursing his shin, a third boy appeared, and his tormentor left him. In a little while, he noticed that the pair were talking about him, and he felt they were looking at his feet. He grew hot and uncomfortable. But others arrived, a dozen together, and then more, and they began to talk about their doings during the holidays, where they had been, and what wonderful cricket they had played. A few new boys appeared, and with these presently Philip found himself talking. He was shy and nervous. He was anxious to make himself pleasant, but he could not think of anything to say. He was asked a great many questions, and answered them all quite willingly. One boy asked him whether he could play cricket. No, answered Philip. I've got a club foot. The boy looked down quickly and reddened. Philip saw that he had asked an unseemly question. He was too shy to apologize, and looked at Philip awkwardly. End of chapter 10